everyone. Thank you. Okay, so let, let me just, a point of housekeeping. Point of housekeeping. So next week is going to officially be our last week. Oh, this is the best. This is the best. However, so, so, so two things. Number one, next week, almost all of the youth group is going to join us. So they'll be in here too. And so next week will be an extended time from 6.15 to 8.15. And so if you need to leave early, I recognize that's a time change on you. Feel free to go if you need to. But then the plan is on the 31st. So next week ends this, but on the 31st, so two weeks from now, is going to be a 6.15 to 8.15 kind of one evening summary of the entire class. Try to condense it down to that. And the high school and middle school is gonna join us for that too. So it's for them because they haven't benefited from this and it's gonna give a, a thumbnail, a two hour thumbnail snapshot. So, so you're, uh, I would love to have you come out and we'll be refreshing from stuff from last semester also. And that's, that's where we're going to go. So uh, you have your notes. I'm going to pray for us in this evening's topic. We're not going to get all the way through it, but is, is the household. So let's pray. Father, we have been enjoying your word. And by enjoying your word, we've been enjoying you. Lord, we have both been sobered by thinking about how the world answers the questions about what it means to be human, how to express sexuality, what it means to be gendered, what it means to have a family, and more. And much of what the world is doing suppresses the truth. Although, because we're made in your image, there are many vestiges and remaining realities that we still see. People still do desire to have children. They still desire um, to be together and to marry and more, but, but more and more the world is changing. And so we recognize that we need to have your mind and you give us your mind and your word. And tonight as we move on from the topic of sexuality and the product of sexuality, households, we pray that you'd help us not just assume because we've all come from households and maybe live in a household, we have a household, that we wouldn't assume that we know your intentions. And so please illuminate your word this evening and change us and transform us ultimately into the image of Jesus so that our lives would reflect and display and proclaim the gospel. In whose name we pray, amen. All right, so as, I, as you heard me just pray, we spent three weeks on the topic of sexuality. And we looked at why God um, gifted sex. We looked at sexual sin. And then last week, we focused in on the topic of the current cultural moment and um, LGBTQ plus and all of those things. But there's a logical progression because we went from looking at what it means to be embodied and gendered and male and female. Then we talked about marriage, and just focused on husband and wife. Then we moved into sexuality because the Bible has, 
God designed sexuality to be expressed in marriage. So we looked at sexuality, and now we're moving to the topic of the household. So from male-female, marriage, sexuality, to the household. So those are the notes that you have. Um, and Anita, if anyone comes in late, would you just point them to the notes right there? I appreciate that. Well, let's jump right in. What I want to do before we to, to begin here is to consider the responsibilities that the God gives to the household in contrast to other institutions that God has created. So what I mean by that is when you read through scripture, we see that there are three institutions God instituted in creation. The first institution was the household, beginning with Adam and Eve. And then the second institution, not necessarily in order, is the state. And the third institution is the church. And so we understand what the roles of a household are in contrast to the church and state. So let me walk through this and I'll explain it. So what is the jurisdiction? What's the biblical responsibilities of a household compared to God's other ordained institutions? So for example, if we were to summarize what the New Testament teaches in the, the jurisdiction the responsibilities, the realm and responsibilities of a local church, when we gather, we are responsible to worship. And that's the ministry of the word through administration of baptism, the Lord's Supper, and singing and praying, preaching and teaching. So the jurisdiction of a church is worship, it's fellowship and discipleship, teaching everyone to obey all Christ said, the jurisdiction of the church is discipline and mission. Worship, fellowship, discipleship, discipline, and mission. Those are the responsibilities that God has given to the church. He did not give, God did not give the responsibilities of these to the state. And God did not give these responsibilities, for example, administration of baptism and supper to a household or to the state. Those are given to the church assembled as we exercise the keys of the kingdom and the pastor elders on behalf of the congregation administer the Lord's Supper or baptize. So that's what a church is to do. Or for example, how about the state? What about the jurisdiction of the state? What are its responsibilities? The state is God's servant for our good. And that word servant is the word deacon. The state is to not be a terror to good conduct. They are to carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So as God's deacon, when the state executes justice in some fashion, from a speeding ticket to um, capital punishment, Romans 13 tells us that the state's wrath is actually God's wrath through the state against a wrongdoer. So the state is supposed to be good to those who do good and to carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And just pointing out that both good and wrong, when Romans 13 says um, good conduct, 
who defines what good conduct is? And so both good and wrong are defined by God's word and or wise application of biblical principles. So we could debate the merits of a seatbelt or traffic laws, but those are principles put in place to protect life. And so those are not necessarily sinful laws, but laws can become sinful. But what we're seeing here is this is what God has given to the state. There's nothing in here about health. There's nothing in here about education uh, or more. Now, you can debate those things about that's part of the good, but we have church, we have state. So what about the household? What is a household and what is it for? Why did God invent a household? As you read through scripture and we look at church history, the household's role is health, education, edification, welfare, discipleship and mentoring, work, and being church-centered. So the ho a household can be likened to a little church, but it's dangerous when you use that language and press it too far, because you could say, well, the dad's like the pastor and the mom's like a deaconess and the kids are the congregation. It's helpful to think of some responsibilities, but you can push it too far if dad begins to uh, baptize and offer the Lord's Supper independent of the congregation. Bigger conversation, I recognize that. So the household is health education, welfare, discipleship mentoring, and more. So the reason I pointed this out is I want you to show that God does not give all authority and responsibility to one institution. He doesn't give it all to the local church. He doesn't give it all to the state. He doesn't give it all to the household. But it's important to recognize the household is first. And it began with Adam and Eve and their offspring. Just real quick, any questions on this of juxtaposing, juxtaposing however you say that word, my words aren't working today. But I want you to see that there's responsibilities given to a household juxtaposed against the state and the church, which are unique to mom and dad or husband and wife in a household exclusively. And a church can go wrong when it encroaches on a household in ways that God has not authorized and the same with the state, that there are responsibilities that it stops with mom and dad. Now, if a household goes illegal, if a household is unrepentant sin, then there's church discipline and there's being arrested, but there's responsibilities to the household. Yeah, Jacob. Are those mics up there, Olivia? Isaac, would you help run those? Sure. Thanks. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> um, nice. All right. Uh, so my question, I guess, is just about, um, like you're saying, the church, obviously, and the whole household work together within, I mean, all of these should work together within the perfect ideal. But uh, with ideas like education and edification, would those not also be under the rule of uh, the church in specific? Yeah, we'll get to that. Very good question. So if one way to think about these is each is a bubble and the bubbles overlap with each other. And so in some ways that, yes, absolutely the church is going to be for discipleship, 
But the primary responsibility of discipleship to children, we're going to see, falls to parents, not the church. The church supplements what parents are doing, not the other way around. And the point there is that a lot of parents use the church on Sunday as the sole discipleship of their kids, and they take no spiritual responsibility. That'd be one example. Yeah. Okay, so what is a household? Now, again, this may seem obvious. So here's one of the things. We all eat. So in one sense, every person has opinions and thinks that we're a nutritionist. We all move around and think that we might be experts in health and fitness. And we all, as I prayed, were born in a household, raised in a household, or in a household. And so it's so obvious, we think that we intuitively know. Uh, but let's, we're looking to God's word to say, what can we see from God's word that are our responsibilities? Because we want to be able to see if we're missing the mark and more. So what is a household? Okay, first... A household normally is bound and built by marriage. So the nucleus of a household is normally comprised of a husband and wife. I keep saying normally because there are instances when we'll see that, you know, if you're single in a household, widow or widower or more, but the nucleus of a household normally most of the time is a husband and wife who have leaved and cleaved through their childhood from their childhood households forming new households they left mom and dad and they formed something new that did not exist before see genesis chapter 2 a household is built out of and bound together by the covenant marriage union so that's what makes a um, married household different from all other, from a single person household or a household with roommates. In Genesis 2, when Adam and Eve come together in the covenant of marriage, they become one flesh, and with their children, as children leave and cleave, new households are, are made, but what makes them unique is they are built by covenant. So if you have a house and you have uh, four guys living with you because you're roommates, that's not bound together by covenant. There might be a contract where they need to pay rent and utilities, but that's not a covenant union that has created a new family unit. That's what makes a biblical household unique, is it's built by, it's based on the marriage of the husband and wife. The chief purpose of a household is a living parable of the gospel. So we saw this back when we talked about marriage. The chief purpose of a household is a living parable of the gospel where the husband is designated in the role of Christ and the wife in the role of the church. See Ephesians 5 again for that. But what we're moving towards is the household has a growing population. Normally, it's not just a husband and wife. Normally, but not always, there's children and more, and that's where we're going. And so the gospel parable component is assigned to the husband and wife only. There's not a gospel portrait assigned to parents and kids necessarily. So that's what makes a household unique. So just by way of comment, modern day single households or roommates are new and unique to human history. It's important to recognize that our cultural moment has not been the same cultural moment for all of human history. So a single household's not sinful, but a single household is not to intentionally replace or delay 
God's intended design of marriage. Cohabitating, unmarried couples living together are also novel, meaning it's new in human history, and sinful, right? For the vast bulk of human history, unless a son was conscripted, conscripted by the army and sent off to war, or he traveled somewhere else because he heard there was work because there was famine on the farm, those were the rare instances when a son would leave the farm or leave the town to go somewhere else. The vast bulk of human history, and if people did travel, they traveled as a family unit to go to a new place or something along those lines. And so we just live in a different day and age, uh, largely due to the rise of industrialization and more, and the rise of education and just all that we're seeing with the hypermobility of our culture, we just have to recognize that's not normal. And so it's also to say it's not normal for there to be single households with young people in it that otherwise should get married but don't want to. So there's a whole bunch of caveats, gift of singleness, God hasn't provided a spouse yet, all of those things. I don't want to do death by a thousand cuts of qualifications. I'm just saying that normally this is how things go. So what's a household for? It's built and bound by the covenant marriage union. So that's what a household is. But a household is also for the Great Commission, right? So we, we've read this. We've seen this passage over and over again. The household is normally, but not exclusively, normally the context and engine to drive the creation commission. Quote, God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all the creatures. Genesis 1.28. Well, the context in the Bible and for the vast bulk of human history for being fruitful multiplying was always marriage. So that's what I mean by context. But then the household also becomes the engine because as you have children, those children grow up and those children are sent out, ultimately, Lord willing, if he gifts them, to build new households, households and more. So a household is the context and engine of the Great Commission. It's how we obey Genesis 127 and 28. So let's dive into that a little bit. Both the husband and wife cooperate and complement one another. So I'm thinking creation commission here. They both have roles and responsibilities. Husband and wife cooperate and complement one another in production and reproduction. Those, that's a good handle to think through that. So if you're supposed to fruitful multiply and subdue and have dominion, that's production and reproduction. Both are responsible to be willing to have and raise children. That's reproduction. And both, husband and wife, are responsible and willing to do what is necessary to cultivate the household of flourishing. And that's production. There needs to be shelter. There needs to be food acquisition and preparation. Someone's got to make or purchase clothing. There has to be fellowship in the home, uh, presuming Christian household. Education to the children. Discipleship and mentoring, fun, generosity and hospitality and more. We'll come back to these. But the creation commission is production and reproduction. Another way to think about that is the husband's responsibilities can be likened to home building, whereas the wife's as homemaking. I heard this recently. I thought this was a, a helpful way to think about 
the delegation of responsibilities that were given to Adam and all the men in Adam and to Eve and all the Eves, to man and woman, both terms, home building, the guy, homemaking, the woman, both terms show the husband and wife are anchored to their household. A lot of times, a man will get so fixated on his work outside the home, his identity in his job or what he does or in school, whatever it is, that a guy tends to not have a homeward-facing heart. Um, I, I've known guys, young and old, who come home, eat, then go out to the detached garage and just spend the evening in the garage tinkering, working on the car, and doing their hobby, whatever their, their deal was, but not in the home with their wife or with their children. And so the idea of home building, I think, is important for a guy to understand is that it captures the biblical responsibility we as men have um, of both terms, rather, homemaking and home building, are anchored in their household, and they capture the idea, the biblical responsibility that man and wife share to both manage their households. So both scriptures speak of women managing their households and men managing their households. A guy is wrong in his thinking if he thinks he's the one who manages his household and the wife doesn't. They both do in different ways with different responsibilities and there are roles in that marriage relationship, but both are required to manage their household. Biblically, managing a home focuses on raising children in the Lord. So if you look up every time that phrase is used in the New Testament, it's usually about teaching your children about Jesus. But managing the home also implies faithful stewardship of finances, resources, right? Your car, your stuff, your house, possessions, your health, your time, etc., while planning and preparing for the future. So a biblical household... A biblical household is about the creation commission. That means that there's a partnership between the husband and wife that has a long-ranging, wide expanse of responsibilities to bear children, to raise the next generation, and more. And we'll talk about that more as we go. Normally, again, normally, the husband, husband's work takes him out of the home, whereas the wife's work normally locates her in the home. So these texts that I have here. You have the Proverbs 31 woman. And she is a homemaker. But she is managing a staff. She is buying and selling property. She's acquiring goods from far away. So she's a merchant. And she's also making stuff for the family. And then her husband is an elder in the city gates. Which means that he has character and he has responsibilities beyond his vocation that are upstanding in the community. That would be an example. But you have Lydia in Acts 16. She was a businesswoman. She was a seller of purple dyes. And she became a believer. And she had a nice house. She had servants, most likely. So she used her, her wealth to help support the local church. Or how about in Acts 18, Aquila and Priscilla? There's no mention of children. They're from Rome. Paul meets them. They have a shared trade together of tent makers. 
So they're doing the same job. She has, they have the same job. She's helping him in the family business and they're traveling and they meet the apostle Paul. And so he begins to work with them because they're of the same trade. So I'm trying to show that the Bible doesn't paint this monolithic picture or rather it paints an elastic picture of what I refer to a wife as a homemaker. And of course, Titus 2 encourages older women to teach younger women to be workers from home. But this is painting a picture that a, a woman being a housemaker and a husband being a home builder complement each other, but it's not sin for a woman to be a tent maker or a seller of purple dyes or to manage a staff. Let's keep going and I'll take some questions. As a home builder, the husband normally gathers resources for building, blessing, and benefit of the home. So typically, that's through earning money and possibly a job that supplies a benefits package so that his wife can be on the health plan and maybe even a dental plan. As a homemaker, the wife normally turns those resources into productive good for the household. He brings in the raw materials and she turns it into stuff he can actually do stuff with. That means she buys stuff. She furnishes the house, but this does not mean, so uh, some, some dear friends of ours, um, she was a homemaker, she was home educating the children, and then when the boys went, they went to high school, she no longer was homemaking. She spent all her time volunteering, serving other families in the church, taking their little kids into the home and watching their kids for them, and she just gave of her time to be a blessing to neighbors, elderly, and young families. And her husband would work all day driving a truck. He'd get home, and then he loved cooking. He was the cook in the family. And so he went in, he went in turned on his music, danced in the kitchen. The sons made fun of him for dancing, and he made a delicious meal. So we have to be careful of stereotypes and things along those lines. But, but the idea is that it's showing that there's responsibilities built into being a home builder and a home maker. So we've been talking about the creation commission. How do Adam and Eve and you and your future spouse, your spouse, partner together to fulfill the creation commission? And we see production and reproduction, home building and homemaking. Any questions on these ideas? <clears throat> Here's another reason for the biblical household. The biblical household is intergenerational. So obviously, we still haven't gotten there yet. Biblically, children are the assumed blessing of a household. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. So when you think about a household, I emphasized it's built around the covenant union of a husband and wife. But now we see that's intergenerational. Another generation behind us with childbearing but also biblically, widows. For example, 1 Timothy 5, verse 4 and verse 16. Paul is instructing the church, he's actually instructing Timothy, and Timothy's to teach the elders in the church, how a church cares for widows. Widows have to have qualifications, they have to have a certain age, they have to have a certain uh, family history to qualify them. So you can have a qualified and disqualified widow to be on the church's roles, and notice it's the church's responsibility to care for 
widows who are unable to care for themselves. Verse 4, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them, that's the children and grandchildren, first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. If any believing woman, this is verse 16, has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So we live in this day and age of retirement communities and more. And it's not to say that they're wrong, but it is to say that in the Bible, in 1 Timothy 5, this is pretty amazing. Look at where Paul puts the jurisdiction of responsibility. If a widow has children, presuming adult children, or check this out, grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness. How does a child, an adult child or a grandchild, show godliness to their own household? Making a return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. So a household is a husband and wife. There's children. But now you go up in the generation to the parents. And the parents, and it's curious that Paul keeps saying widow, which is a, which is a reference to a, a woman who has a deceased husband. And here he's talking about making a return to the parents. So is Paul saying that also caring for an aged father? I think so. Is he also saying that you age, you, you honor your deceased father by taking care of the widowed mother? I think so. I think those are implied. But down in verse 16, the net gets even bigger. If any believing woman has relatives, so now it's beyond parents. He's not talking about parents anymore because he mentioned parents earlier. If he was still thinking of parents, he would have used the same word. Now he's broadening it, broadening it out to aunts and uncles, perhaps, or further, cousins. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. And the whole point is, let the church not be burdened. Why? Because the church actually cares for widows who are truly widows. And if you read through 1 Timothy 5, it's widows, he says, who are, quote, left all alone in the world, that there's no family around them to care for them. And so this actually adds more texture to what Jesus says in Matthew 5. God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But if anyone says, but, but sorry, if you say, so he's talking to the Pharisees, but if you say, if anyone t tells his, oh my goodness, <laughs> if anyone tells his father or his mother, what, would have, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his 
father. This is still what the Pharisees are teaching Israel. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. So he's talking to, Jesus is, the responsibilities of adult children to mother and father. And what you would have gained from me is given to God. So sorry, mom. Sorry, dad. I'm going to make an offering. I'm going to give my offering at church. So I, I can't help support you. Jesus says, that's what the Pharisees were teaching. And he's saying that you have made void the word of God. So I'm just kind of hammering this point that doesn't get talked about very much. We have responsibilities. So I'll say this. Here's the principle. A Christian has the responsibilities to make sure their aged family who needs care is cared for. And that's physical care, spiritual care, they're cared for. And that might mean bringing, having a, a, gram, a grandma unit in the house, or it could be relocating them and living in a community, but making sure that they're not just out of sight, out of mind, and shut away, but actually cared for and still know that they are members of the family. So part of a biblical household built around the covenant marriage our children in the generation below, and at some point, aged parents or family in the generation above. Any questions? Yeah, Diane. Thanks, that's fine. Thanks. Does a widow include some, a woman maybe who has been single her whole life? Not in 1 Timothy 5, it doesn't. So when Paul lists, so like specifically, the letter of the text is he lays out qualifications in 1 Timothy 5. It's a long portion of the text. And part of the qualifications is she has to be over 60 and she has to have um, managed her own household. And it presumes that there was kids. Now, we're gonna, when we get into kids, we're going to see the first principles that the Lord opens and closes the womb. Um, and, and there's some women who choose to remain single. They are give, they're given the gift of singleness. What do you do? So I think that there is a sense in which Christian love would extend the principle to say that we're caring for godly women. And that's Paul's main point, is looking for, just as there's godly qualifications for elders and deacons, there's godly qualifications for those women whom the church cares for. So my personal take is that, yes, we would care for them. He just doesn't mention it because I think he presumes they'd get married because of arranged marriages. And he also tells them that if they're 59, they're supposed to get married again. <laughs> he does. You read it. It's pretty interesting. He also tells them they have bear children, so he's probably also thinking of some younger ladies as well. Yeah, any other questions on this idea of the intergenerational household? What I want you guys to hear, you young guys, is he's talking to grandchildren too. So if you have any grand uncles or anybody, there's a biblical responsibility that we all have for our broader family, which is just, that should, that should broaden our thinking a bit of how we care for people. That also has financial implications of how you steward your money, the kind of job you choose, things along those lines. Um, let's keep going. 
So I gave you at the beginning those contrasting jurisdictions of church and state and house. I want to circle back now because we're going to drill into more details about the core responsibilities or jurisdictions of the household. So we've already looked at this. The first jurisdiction responsibility of a household is your household needs to be an engine of the Great Commission and the Creation Commission. Creation Commission, reproduction and production. So your household should be a blessing and benefit to others. An operative principle in the Bible is hospitality and generosity. And if you read Ephesians 4, Paul talks about how a thief, you know, steals. But there's an essence, there's a principle in which a thief is somebody who only takes what is not theirs. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor doing honest work so that he can have, so that he can share with others. So a biblical principle is that we should all be industrious as the Lord provides so that we, that he gives us more than we need. And then we use our extra resources to be generous to others, giving to church, having people in your home and feeding them and more things along those lines. So the creation commission, yes, it's having kids, but it's also being productive. And then the, and the great commission, Matthew 28 is the first place the Great Commission takes place is in your house. Christian parents embody the gospel through the husband like Christ and wife like the church and preaching the gospel to their kids from their earliest ages. So the engine, the household is the engine of both the Great, the great Commission and Creation Commission. It's really important to understand. There's so many times that I've heard over the years like, for example, the Great Commission, parents talk about how, well, I'm just going to let my kid decide their spirituality. I'm not going to force them to go to church. That person is probably not actually a believer or they're so under-discipled and have never read their Bible that um, they're in need of serious discipleship. So we, we are required from Jesus, Ephesians 6, 1 and following, to raise our children in the instruction and um, admonition of the Lord. Very important. That means then, I, what I think about the creation commission, is that when you get out of bed, and you, this adds texture and meaning to your work, to the man as a home builder and the wife as a homemaker. Go back to that couple I mentioned earlier. Uh, she worked different jobs outside the home but when she was they had four boys they have four boys but when they were younger raising them and then when those boys went to school in high school years as I mentioned she didn't just sit around the house she got to work and was visiting as I mentioned the senior saints in the church and the young marrieds in the church who had one kid or struggling in their marriage or trying to figure out parenting or all those things and she just be just gave of her time and herself to make meals for people, to go to Starbucks, get coffee, go to the frazzled mom, all of those. That's, that's how she used her time. And I'd say that's an example of productivity, of um, w one way to express being uh, a faithful homemaker is she helped make other people's homes. Another reason for the biblical household is fellowship. It's a household that serves the Lord. What does Joshua say? 
As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's on your pillows, your grandma's pillows. For example, living out the one others of scripture, helping each other know and follow Jesus as co-heirs of eternal life. If you're married or if the Lord gifts you with marriage, your spouse is your nearest and dearest companion to help you know and follow Jesus and for you to help them know and follow Jesus. That's the, that's the fundamental function. And that a wife should understand what Jesus is like more by the way her husband loves and sacrifices for her. And a husband should get a better idea of what the church is like submitting to and worshiping Jesus by the wife submitting to and honoring her husband. It's about fellowship. It's about the one another's of scripture. A household is about health. God assigns the jurisdiction to the home that a, a mother and father are to do what is necessary to help each other thrive physically, mentally, socially, spiritually, spiritually, especially the children. So a husband and wife have duties to each other and they have duties to the kids before the Lord. And that includes health. So we'll go through these and they'll come back and take questions on the news that you have. The household is also about wealth. So generating income and or resources for the thriving of every member of the household. Think about it. How does the state generate wealth? It steals from you or just prints more money and creates inflation. Right? So the state is, doesn't make its money. It takes its money. Uh, how about the church? The church only has resources through the generosity of, its, of, of people who give. Right? That, that, that's it. But it's the household. It's Adam in the garden going out and working. It's the Proverbs 31 woman buying and selling fields, things along those lines. The household is the context. Normally, you don't have to be married to get a job, FYI, guys. <laughs> Generating income and or resources for the thriving of every member of the household. Go back to thinking about how even grandchildren bear a responsibility for widows in their family tree. Generating and stewarding income to be generous with others. We talked about that. Hospitality. Having enough food to put food on the table for others or to take food to a family in need. Part of wealth is stewarding income and resources, even if the Lord allows, to leave an inheritance of some fashion. So Proverbs 13.22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his grandchildren. Now, here's an important detail. We're seeing these principles about how God assigns responsibilities and trajectories, in this case, to the household. But what we're going to see with kids, for example, if we were to go to 1 Samuel 2, when Hannah sings her song of praise because she finds out that she's with child, she acknowledges in that song that the Lord kills and the Lord makes alive. The Lord makes rich and the Lord makes poor. The Lord gives someone a high status in their culture, their, their city, and then he humbles people to a low status. 
So one way that we could be frustrated, like you read this verse and you, you could say that I have worked my entire life my, down to the bones of my fingers and I have barely enough to put food on the table. But then you read this Proverbs, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And so that pause you to think that, well, am I not a good man? Am I a foolish man? And that's not the principle. The principle is that with whatever skills and opportunities and times and resources the Lord gives us, we do the best that we can. And then the Lord chooses whether or not that we have great wealth or poverty and things along those lines. Does that make sense? It's really important. So that's again, the same thing's going to happen when we talk about kids. Because infertility is real, miscarriage, the desire to marry and there never being a spouse are all real things. And so this could sound like heaping guilt, and that's not what this is. That's why I kept using the word normally. We pray, we trust the Lord, and we live faithful in our lives, and then he builds all these details out. So that's how wealth, and then education. So the responsibility to raise and educate children belongs to the parents, not the church or the state. This does not mean parents cannot delegate aspects of education to others. They can, but it does mean parents are responsible to give their kids the best education they can and are responsible to know what the education is and how the education is coming along. So I'm trying to allow for the elasticity that if someone was ever to be passionate to say that we want to have um, Flagstaff Christian Fellowship preschool, I don't know, that it's not wrong for people to gather together and to use their skill sets, that this person is better than math than anybody else. Porter Cochran is great at history, and so he's going to teach history. You know, or whatever it is, it's not wrong for people's giftings to have private schools. And it's still not necessarily wrong to send your kid to public school. I am trying to get to the principle that a parent is responsible to both raise and educate their kids. And if a parent... If the parents put their kids in daycare all day long and only have an hour and a half to two hours or daycare or school and only have a few hours a day with their kids, they really need to think deeply about that family decision and why they're making that decision. Because we just are raised in a culture where we assume that the, what the state provides is what we're supposed to do and take. And I'm just challenging you to question that. And at the very least, if you're a parent, to recognize that if you have to have your kid go to daycare and then go to school and you don't see them, you just require extra hyper-vigilance in caring for your kids. Um, so, for example, B. Part of raising children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, that's Ephesians 6, 1 and following, is not merely teaching them the Bible, but how all of life and knowledge belongs to the Lord and is to be a vehicle of worship of Him. What does that mean? That means that math and the sciences and all educational pursuits are meant to honor and glorify God. 
So if your kid is learning math, if your kid is learning the sciences, whether what the, the, from the earliest age, children need to know that the reason math exists is because God invented it. And that when you are learning your times tables, it glorifies lo the Lord and they should be memorizing them while they're complaining about it, but still glorifying the Lord in it. And so if we send our kids out, they're raising a culture to think that math doesn't belong to the Lord. Science certainly doesn't belong to the Lord, they're taught, because science is real and God is fake, right? So there's that change. So we have, there's that duty that raising our children in the Lord is an all of life statement, not just a Bible study statement, but a Bible study statement encompasses all of life. There's no such thing as secular knowledge and children need to be taught to embrace that reality. It's been said to parents, when you send your kids off to be taught by Caesar, why are you surprised they come back as Roman citizens? So that's what I'm speaking against. So if we're sending them to be taught to be non-Christians, why are we surprised that they don't want to go to youth group, leave the church as soon as they, they fly the nest and things along those lines? So I'm trying to push against that to, to call parents to be vigilant, uh, diligent. Man. That's <laughs> 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 decaf. Parents who provide a secular education, again, must be extra vigilant and work extra hard to cultivate a biblical worldview for their children. Welfare. Households are designed to absorb and meet needs of extended family members and or aged parents and or ailing family and or children with special needs and or fill in the blanks. So this, the social safety net that God designed was the household and then extended family unit to care for each other. That was, that was his design. That just has a lot of implications to think through when you think about the welfare state that we live in. So when the government, so we'll talk about jurisdiction, when the government steps out of its responsibilities and encroaches on other responsibilities, if the state replaces the household for educating kids and caring for people, the need for a household doesn't really exist anymore. It undercuts God's design. Now, that's a huge string to pull. There's a whole lot of things we can talk about and more, but it's important to recognize that, again, what we saw, well, actually, I didn't show you this verse. Back in the passage on widows in 1 Timothy 5, this is verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I mean, that's a punch-to-the-gut statement. Note in this verse that the primary responsibility of provision is for one's own household, but secondarily, so look, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially members of his household, so that means that we have a responsibility for other households in our family tree. And that if they begin to fall apart, we're a safety net to catch them. And Paul is 
Look at how forceful this is. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It's interesting as he says anyone. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul is speaking specifically to, primarily to uh, younger women to take care of older women. Primarily, but not exclusively. So when he says if anyone, he's speaking both to a man and a woman not providing for their relatives. Again, providing for a relative may be finding a safe environment, a safe location to provide for them better than you can, and you foot the bill for it. That's possible, but it is to say that there is that, that network of responsibility that belongs to a household, not the state. And then so if you go back to what we looked about widows, when a widow is truly alone, the church steps in. And it's the collection of households and singles and people that, of the church when we are pooling our resources together generously, part of those resources then are used to care for widows in some capacity. So when the household breaks apart, the church is the safety net behind the household. Almost done here with this section. The, the jurisdiction responsibilities of a household discipleship and mentoring we, we saw these already but just just again to put it in front of us Ephesians 6 1 children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right honor your father and mother this is the commandment with a promise and and notice Paul is speaking to little kids obey your parents right then he quotes from the command ten commandments honor your father and mother but we heard earlier in Matthew Jesus quote this to adult children and providing for their, their parents. So one way children honor their parents, when you're a little kid, you obey your parents, but when you, are an when you are out of the nest and have your own household or you're on your own, you can still honor your parents financially if need be. Let me just make another comment on that. That also means that aging parents... Um, as, as end-of-life issues approach, as life is prolonged, as medical needs increase, and as just the bills and cost of living are satanic, that there is wisdom in considering insurance and other things to protect your adult children so they don't go bankrupt or so that they're not in a place where they can't provide for you. Uh, because when you think about the wealth structure of a household, Children are dependents, and then aged parents are dependents. And in that working age of, you know, basically mid-20s to mid-60s, those years of working is the household is stressed to put those finances up towards the parents and down towards the kids. So there's, with the wealth, there's also responsibilities for um, parents, to th aged parents to think through. Does that make sense? We can, you can ask questions on that when we get to it. So discipleship and mentoring. The first line of instruction and discipleship of children is not the church. It's the home. Children's and youth ministries are to supplement biblical education and discipleship in the home, not vice versa. So right now as the middle schoolers and high schoolers meet, praise God we have this amazing uh, team serving them and praise God 
uh, for the great work that Christian's doing, being faithful to the word and preaching it to them and all of those things. But that ministry exists to supplement the house, not vice versa. And so us parents, so, so when, when I'm driving home this evening, the conversation on the drive home is, how was youth group? What was the message about? What stuck out to you? What was important? What, what did you learn? What was confusing that was said? And, and then start talking with the kids about what they, what they learned. But here's another piece. Seems obvious, but I have mentoring here. And I'm using the two terms differently, discipleship and mentoring. You could blur the lines, but mentoring speaks to the responsibility of raising children to be productive, successful adults who can find a godly spouse and replicate a new godly household. So our kids need to know how to cook and clean manage finances, find a productive job, find, again, find a godly spouse, be a faithful church member in a healthy church, and so on. So there's like a funnel of responsibility. This is, represents age. When the child's a newborn, they can't even lift their head. You have to do everything for them. But when your kid's eight, 17 and a half, and they still can't lift their head, you do everything for them, that's a problem. Mentoring is training the kids to be successful adults, successful godly adults, and making wise decisions with their lives. So that's part of the biblical household, is releasing them into the wild of society, and that they're going to do well because they love Jesus, and they have been trained in the ways of the Lord. Another reason is hospitality and generosity. That's why a household exists. A godly household is to show hospitality and be generous to others. And lastly, a godly household is church-focused. A godly household faithfully participates in the life of a local healthy church. While many of the commands in the New Testament can and should be lived out in the household first, Scripture's intention is that, the, that they would also be lived out daily with a local church. I think sometimes families can go wrong uh, even idolize the family to the, to the extent where the household is elevated so high that the church is not essential to a household, but it is. It is. And so the point here is, yes, we live out, with the, we live out Ephesians 4 in our house, but you also have to live it out with Christian neighbors. So I have Acts 2 here that just shows you how the early church organized their lives. Evening by evening, gathering together in their homes, for home fellowship, and day by day in the temple for church. And just an admonition from Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. This is an admonition to households. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Verse 25 indicates not going to church can be a formed habit. The text does not give a threshold as in church attendance less than 75% is neglecting to meet. Do you hear it says it doesn't say that? Rather, the emphasis in the passage is that Christians should gather together more often than not. This means husbands should lead their wives and families in regular fellowship with their church outside of Sunday but certainly on Sunday. So here's the questions. Are you the type of person 
Or do you live in a household that the church is surprised to not see you at church? Or surprised to see you at church? Do you see the difference with those? So you go to church week in, week out, and you, you know who you're going to see. And you see them so often that when you don't see them on Sunday, well, where's, where's the Barry family? Where are they at? Or conversely, there's people in our church, there's members of our church, who when I see them in the church, I say, oh, you go here? <laughs> because I don't see them very often. And oftentimes, households, especially, well, not especially, doesn't matter what age or stage the couple is, either a wife or a husband, and responsibility falls to the husband, but they could cause each other to develop a habit of not going to church, of neglecting to meet together. Parents disciple children at all times, when you think you are or whether you, or you think you aren't, and spouses with each other. This includes church attendance, church inv involvement and service, and church relationships. When vacationing, hunting, sports, laziness, work, or anything regularly and habitually wins out over worshiping with the church, those parents disciple their kids that Jesus' plan is an optional add-on that became quickly traded in for something else. There was a Babylon Bee article. If you know what the Babylon Bee is, please raise your hand. Okay. It's Christian satire. It is funny. <laughs> there was one where there's a, there's a picture of like this mom and dad, and they're just in tears, and they're broken. And then it shows like a punk rock teenager in the background, like leaving. And it says, parents surprised child not going to church while in college, even though they went to church on Christmas and Easter every year. And so the satire was the parents are blaming the kid. They can't figure out why their kid doesn't love church. And it's because the, the parents didn't take the kid to church. A household responsibility is to make your family church. Church-centric is probably not the right word, but to be around the church. Let me give another for example. A couple years ago, so, or some years ago in youth ministry, godly woman, it's a godly single mom, um, four beautiful children, the oldest was in a sport, um, faithfully coming to youth group, and the sport the child was in at a Christian school, the Christian school made the practice on the nights most commonly used for youth group, Wednesday nights. And what the godly mom said was, well, I'm trying to teach my child responsibility, and we have a commitment to the team and to go, and so that's why the child is not coming to youth group for the next four months, or th three months was the season. And I challenged the mom and said, I understand you've made this commitment to the sport, but you have a prior existing commitment to the youth group. And I would suggest it's a more important youth group. Your daughter is a, or a more important priority. Your daughter is a believer. And when she's here, she's helping her peers know and follow Jesus. And there's other believers here 
who are helping your daughter know and follow Jesus. And in this instance, you're teaching your daughter that this commitment to this sport is more important than, than youth group. And that's going to have lasting dividends on her perspective of when something else rivals church, the other thing is going to win. And um, there's other sports to play. There's other nights to practice on, things along those lines. Not trying to be legalistic, but to point out a principle that when you, one day if you have kids, if you have kids, if you have grandkids, there's this element where we're discipling. So the household is the training and proving ground for qualified officers in the church, elders and deacons, as well as the church supporting widows. That's what the household is for. That was a whole bunch of stuff. Wanted to get through it quick. Stop there. Take any questions before I dismiss you and stay here longer to take more questions. Any of those items we went through, all those reasons for why God invented a household and its jurisdictional responsibilities. Uh, going back to a question asked earlier about um, spinsters. Um, and, and I say that because... Is that a widow? No. What's a spinster? Uh, a woman who's not married, doesn't okay. have any family. Sorry. And who lives yeah. on her own. Okay, okay? yeah. Uh-huh. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's what I think of as spinsters. And back in the time when, when Paul and everyone were writing this, I would think that most of the women were in households. And... Widows are brought out because of a loss of a husband. But I could think of that the church responsibility to support widows would also apply to an elderly woman who's on her own, who may be medically challenged or financially challenged. I think it's kind of similar, uh, but maybe I'm wrong, and maybe it's not mentioned by Paul because maybe at that time that wasn't a big factor, that there weren't many of them. I don't know. Both are right, yes. Yes to, so the church is responsible to care for it, for everyone. Um, and so, uh, so those um, single older women who never married, yeah, I think that we have a responsibility for them based on the principle in the text. The reality is, for the vast bulk of human history, marriages were arranged and you stayed in the house until you, your parents gave you away in marriage and a new household was, was made. And that not only was a reality of society, it was a necessity of actually living. So that's why I was saying at the very beginning, the idea of having a single household where you go out on your own and live on your own is just is novel, meaning it's just new in human history. We're in new territory the last couple centuries. Uh, since the 50s and 60s, really. Uh, but anyways, yeah. Good, good observation, good question. Yes, what else? Um, okay, so this is in the context of like jurisdiction and talking about what is um, the role of the church, um, but kind of like how should that work out in the way that we understand it like currently um, kind of like in terms of policy, basically, because, like, you talked about the spheres, and then once, but, like, when one jurisdiction is failing, the others will, of necessity, step in. So how do you balance, like, the fact that in our culture that understanding of families, like, providing for each other is, like, not really there, 
so like there is a need there. So how does that work out like in terms of policy even? There needs to be a president who just fires the entire bureaucracy. I don't, I don't know. I mean, so, so we have this society, this culture baked in. Um, sadly, I'll, I'll flip that on the head because I don't have the answer to that. But what, I, but what we do know is the answer is the gospel. And you can see God's beautiful wisdom in the interconnectedness of one household with other households, both in family tree structures and then a forest of family trees called a local church. And that interconnectedness is, is beautiful. And so there's a sense in which, um, you know, you, you see someone who's on the street, and let's say I'm, 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 I'm not going to presume that they're, they're using or there's mental health issues. Maybe this isn't the best example. But you, could, you just see that the need for a family structure, if when the state steps in to care for somebody, and that person has burned all their other bridges, it's allowing them to not need their family tree. And it's allowing them not to need a church because the state is stepping in and being that role for them. And so in that sense, the state undercuts gospel work that could take place. How do you fix that? I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure. Um, but that's a really good question. Okay, and kind of to follow up, um, to what extent do you think that like nonprofits and like parachurch ministries, like how do they fit into that jurisdiction? Yeah, so I think parachurch ministries usually have a good place, though I have a bone to pick with college ministries and missions agencies. A parachurch ministry can either f work as a funnel or a firewall. And I see that a lot of college ministries serve as a firewall, not encouraging kids, students, apologize, to get into healthy local churches and becoming faithful members. Uh, they should be a funnel for that, not a firewall. And then missions agencies, something similar. I think the church abdicates a lot of responsibility that we have to train and vet missionaries. So they have their place. There's really good iterations from them. And I think there's, there's wisdom for believers to band together. We just live in a day and age where this rise of parachurch ministries is not theologically moored and has, most of them have deficient ecclesiologies. And so even though parachurch means alongside the church, it's almost like they supplant the church. So I'm not against it in principle, but I think in practice, there needs to be a lot of work done with parachurch ministries and local churches to make sure that partnership goes well. I made sweeping statements there. I said most, and I actually mean that. But there are good ones. Yeah, Jacob. Um, I guess two questions. Is the green light on on, on that? Yeah. Okay. Um, no, I, uh, two questions. Uh, first off, um, with uh, when we're supposed to support the widows within our family tree or whatever, is that, um, what scope is that? Like, is it simply just financially or is it like welcoming them into your household and all of the roles and responsibilities that fall under that? It's as comprehensive as you can make it. So it may be 
planning and having, um, having a family member come into your home. Absolutely. That, that's what it would have been in the, in the vast bulk of human history. Um, there is, we have relatives um, on my, and in my family, and they were part of a Presbyterian church, and the grandpa has gone on to be with the Lord. But the Presbyterian church bought a row of houses, and one of their ministries is to, um, to, to widows, and, and then um, even low-income uh, low housing, that's the right way to describe it, so they were living there, owned by the Presbyterian Church. He passed away. She still lives there. But that's working really well. She's happy to be there. And fam, um, family is nearby. Visit her on a regular basis. That's an option. Bring them into your home. It's an option. But it's a comprehensive well-being. Mental, physical, spiritual, everything. And then uh, <clears throat> how does, uh, in the case of divorce within that system, how does that fall apart like so if like or does it so like say if uh if instead of like a wife um her husband dying and then becoming a widow that way and children stepping in to support her say instead the marriage is broken by um divorce do the still children still have that responsibility to provide for the mother in that way and then also, like, say, like, within your family tree, let's say, like, oh, originally this lady was, like, your sister-in-law, but um, say she divorced your brother. Like, do you have a responsibility in that way to still support them? So I think that comes down, that's ultimately a wisdom issue. It's a prudential issue, wisdom issue. And it's an issue that would be case by case. So Christian love would, uh, the, the spouses got divorced, but they didn't divorce the aunt or the mom. There's, there's multiple stories of good relationships continuing with other family members that were separated by divorce. The reason I say wisdom and prudence is there's many people and many factors that go into it. I think Christian love would move us towards being willing to help somebody. That should be our heart posture to help. Uh, but then it's a, it needs a lot of wisdom and nuance. Uh, I'm, I'm older than dirt, so I'm going to go back a ways. I grew up in a time uh, post-Depression, World War II, when families did exactly what you're talking about. I, li I lived in a house that was very small, tight, couple of bedrooms, two bedrooms to be exact. And as a child, I had so many of our relatives living with us. My uncle sleeping in a bed next to me as a kid, or me on the floor and my uncle and not in the bed. But families did this, uh, it was never like a burden, they always, took others in, helped others. And that was pretty prevalent at the time. But that was a culture thing at that time. No one let anybody else out in the cold. When somebody was hurting, another family or a family member stepped in. And, and I think that's really kind of uh, 
fell in de decay and disruption. And back then, it, was, it wasn't something people had to do. Something people just did it. Mm -hmm. And they shared whatever they had, even if it was very little, it was split up. And it, there was never any worry about that. Today, I, I think we've come a long way from there, unfortunately. And going to NGOs, some of them are very good. They, they do follow biblically what the, what the Bible's saying. But then there's some take the border right now with things. Some of these NGOs are operating just to make money from the government to pass on and keep some themselves. And I think that's gotten away from the purpose of serving. So you got to look at an NGO as to how is it made up, how much of the money that they're collecting is going literally to the people who need it. And I, I think a lot of them are just supporting the government doing their thing, unfortunately. And, and I don't think it's serving the welfare of the people they're supposed to be doing. It just becomes a handout. And then they just think, okay, I'm going to always have that. And we're bringing people in. Are they going to be able to work? I think many of them want to work. But, you know, are the jobs going to be there? Especially with AI coming on board and jobs going away. So. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, yeah, there's a lot, of, lot to that. Going back to your first point, I appreciate that testimony that you give. And that would be an example of our church, our na rather, our nation from the West moving from a cultural Christianity to a post-Christian so, so there it was, someone's in the car, no, you come into my house, I'm going to feed you and you can, you can take my bed. That hospitality, that was just, you didn't even think about it. But now, uh, I, I, didn't, I don't have this in the notes, but you'll see that you can read this on your own, A Brief Theology of Children, it goes down. I was reading an article, um, this kind of, what you said made me think of that. I was talking about a couple who is trapped in their... I think 1,700 square foot home or 2,000 square foot home, trapped in the sense that they want to have another kid, but they don't have enough space. And as I was reading the article, I'm realizing, so the couple is trapped because they presume that to have a child, a child must have their own bedroom. They haven't read Little House on the Prairie. Uh, you know, the whole idea that just the, the mentality of our culture, of the independence your own space, all of those things, it's more and more fragmented than, than together, uh, such that people get those false beliefs that, well, we can't get a new house. We, we need a new house because we want to have two kids, not one, and 2,000 square feet is not big enough. And 2,000 square feet sounds a bit bigger than the house that you might have grown in, grown up in Richard, yeah. 600 square feet, yeah. Elder Scott. Uh, Ron, Ron, did you have a question? Oh, Ron. Yeah, um, um, I'm thinking if you took covenant membership and implemented how the household is to become covenant membership in a church, local church like ours, uh, which I am now covenant membership, uh, what number do you think that there will be for membership at a church? And do you think it's important that that should be implemented also. 
meaning just like this biblical understanding of a household part of becoming a member? Listen, you're talking to the wrong guy because I'd just add more and more classes to our membership. So you got to ask Scott that question. I think it's important. I, I think it's, it's important. This is an important topic, and that's why it's being taught now. Um, it's harder to go into it like this on a Sunday, but it's, but it's, it's possible. Uh, good question. Scott. So a question about uh, home church. So we're talking about jurisdiction of home, jurisdiction of church. And then we have this phenomenon called, called home church. And so let me, if I were to make some, like, a broad statement, I would say that I would, I'm very leery of home churches for a few reasons, one of which would be the officers of elders and elder and deacon that are spelled out in scripture. Uh, I'm not sure how that would work in a home church. Uh, ordinances of Lord's Supper and baptism. How does that work in a home church? And we, by home church, I mean home church in um, in a culture that it's you have the freedom to gather together. Not like Iran, where it's kind of like home church is kind of how you have to do things because there seems to be almost like a uh, I don't want to say rebellion, but a dissatisfaction with the organized church and oftentimes it seems like the way to do it is like, let's just have our own home church. Um, so I guess I'm asking, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, is it just Scott being overly sens sensitive on church and ecclesiology or any thoughts on home church? And is that legit in terms of the jurisdictions that you're talking about? So there, there was, okay, I think in biblical principle, so if we, if we think in principle, a band of believers just needs to constitute together, covenant together around a shared doctrine, and they need to have the marks of a healthy church, which you emphasize, right? So if there's three guys, okay, who's going to be the elder? Flip the quarter. Like, that's probably not the best, healthiest start to a church or something along those lines, so I think that you could allow for it. I also agree in my experience um, that it, it's not wrong. You're right to make a caricature that usually there's an overemphasis on one detail of biblical Christianity at the expense of other details. So I think maybe to tie it in with this conversation is one way that things can go wrong is if you take, if you take the idea that my house is a little church, I'm pastor dad and and deaconess wife Rachel if you press that too far and you just get together with a couple other families it tends to get be like an inbred legalism that ends up happening and there's just not a lot of of health there and so I, I'm also leery of those they're not wrong I think context matters motive matters and um, I've seen it done well and I've seen it done poorly so I'm not sure if that really helps too much. Yeah, Anita, just on that. Just to follow that, would you say that it should be directional, like a home church should be headed toward becoming a church body? Yeah, so uh, we can't manufacture conversion, but we know that uh, every Christian is to be faithful to the Great Commission. And so if a church is, so this is an all things being equal statement. Right. This is not transferable to necessarily 
a church in Malaysia or Iraq. But, there, but the church is growing in Iraq right now uh, and Iran. But anyways, we can't presume on the Lord. To, but if a church is intentionally saying we are only going to be uh, five families big and then split off and do a new uh, house church, there's just a good question I was asked once when I was church planting. What is your church not able to get and what are your members not able to give because of the size of your church? And now that's not to say that the bigger the better. There's, there's problems everywhere. But um, yeah, I just think it needs to be thought through carefully. Question. Yeah, it's on. Um, uh, so basically, some, this, he was saying that this, there's a lot of talk about hospitality, right? And, uh, well, I'm wondering how much it extends to family. Because back then, I feel like the hospitality was a lot more common. It was a lot more given, given back then around the 1950s and decreased from that point. The thing is, is that you know, he, he, he said over there that it's, it's, we've come a long way from that, right? People have. But the thing is, is that, um, you know, for family, for family, it's different, but for not sure how it extends to people who aren't our family because the world has changed so much. We're at the point in our time where, you know, in the 80s, I was watching this show where um, this kid was talking about, like, he went to a party and they were asking him to do cocaine. He's like, but I didn't want to do it, you know. So he comes back and he tells his father. And by the end of the episode, he's like, the, the world is changing at this point, you know. And he go, and by the end of the episode, he sees, you see the father locking the door. And it's kind of a nod to when, that's when people started locking the doors because the world has just gotten so much more dangerous. Hospitality and people have not, has not decreased because because of the people who are willing to give hospitality is because we can't at this point because the decrease in, in the general um, goodness in, in America because of, because of the decrease in Christianity and the values of it being important in our country. And that, that really started, I've done a lot of research on this, and it really started around 1969. Uh, that was the, the, the major change point in our country. So I'm really wondering about... Um, how far does this extend, this hospitality? Yeah, good question. So even, so f first century, earlier than that, um, you would go to the city square if there weren't inns, and someone would bring you in, invite you into the house to stay. Um, now it seems pretty nuts to do that because of safety issues. Here's a couple ways I've seen it done. So one, hospitality doesn't necessarily mean spending the night. But it could mean that you get to know your unbelieving neighbors, coworker, student, a uh, fellow student or something like that. Get to know them and then you bring them into your home for a meal and that's, that's it. Like just hang out, okay, see you later. So that, it's not to say, uh, it can be a stranger, but it could be someone that you're building a relationship with. That's a species of hospitality. Um, from a different angle, I know people who have chosen to do Airbnb, for example, but they rent a, a room in their home. Uh, you have to come through the front door through the living room to get into that room. And they actually let them know that it's a common area 
and we're happy to hang out with you or something along those lines. And so they actually use that as a gospel opportunity within legal parameters, but they, but they, they do that as well. So there's different ways to express it. So it's, yes, it's changed, but the principle hasn't. We're still supposed to exercise hospitality and hospitality is not just with strangers, it's also with uh, people in your church as well, but okay. it's both end. I'm going to make a statement to what he was saying. Um, it's, it's a cause and effect scenario. And it's like a set of dominoes. Here goes one, then this change, there goes another one. And that's what our society has done in the 50s. It was a lot different. We didn't have the dominoes. Now we, we got a stack high domino. And, and the whole culture is going down that way. Yeah, that's a great, great way to describe it, absolutely. Well, anything else before I close us? Anita, Anita, is it about hospitality? Yes. All right. <laughs> I don't know where the verse is, but in 1 but in Peter, it's talking about the end times. And in the end times, it follows that you're supposed what is the verse? Help me out, Dave. Is it Second Peter? Is it your husband's the one who's preaching uh, through it? Is it Second Peter? There is a lot about it in Second Peter, but I'm not sure exactly. Okay, what's what's uh, what's one of the words you can think of in there? Is Hospitality. That is one thing. What does it say? First Peter chapter four. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Yes. Okay, so before that, go up. It says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And then it, it goes on. But showing hospitality in the end times when things are dangerous is what we're supposed to be doing. And um, I would say that an example of that in history would be when Jews during the Holocaust were invited into Christian homes mm. to be protected at risk of their own lives. Danger actually makes hospitality even more important and the goal of hospitality is not necessarily to just invite people into your house. It's actually to share the gospel with them. And it's really important, especially when it's dangerous. Amen, sister. Thank you. All right, so the aim this evening was just to wrap our minds around the different reasons God has given in the word for inventing marriage, but not marriage in the abstract, marriage that makes a household. The intergenerational connectedness, the family tree connectedness, um, and then the responsibilities and duties of parents in a home. That's really important, I think, for those of us uh, who are in midlife with kids in the home underfoot, things along those lines. It's a good tune-up. Uh, for those of you... Uh, more in that uh, later stages of life, empty, ne empty nester, 
a, a good re reminder for you if you have adult children or you are around young families that are struggling. I mean, you come here on a Sunday and there are young families and they're all struggling. You know why? Because they're young and they're families. And so they need help. And they're trying to figure out how to parent and all of those things and, and more. And so part of this is us being retuned, so to speak, to the Word of God to think about those responsibilities so that if you talk to somebody, you can be a little bit more specific about if you're talking to a guy who's a husband, how, how are you doing on being a producer? And how are you doing on being a home builder? Are you, are you going out and tinkering in the garage? Or are you actually uh, talking to your kids about Jesus? And if you can, or do you pray with them before they go to sleep and things along those lines? So uh, you can read your notes. We'll, we'll go through them. As I mentioned, just in closing, youth group will be with us next week. Uh, Lord willing, we'll finish out family. We'll talk about ethnicity, and then that will be our last time together for, uh, for this class next week. And the week after, youth group will be with us again, and that's going to be the 6.15 to 8.15 uh, summary of the whole thing. So that's, that's the plan. Yeah, two more, two more Wednesdays and then summer break. So let's, uh, let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of households. We all have come from a household and are in one. And we can point to both the blessings and what seems to be curses and the problems and more. But Lord, we understand that what your gospel does is it restores. It builds men into the role of Christ and women into the role of the church. And it does much for the good of society and neighbor and church and beyond. So Lord, we pray that we as a church family would excel in preparing our young people or those who desire to marry to be married and to be faithful in their marriage, those who are married and have households to be faithful in it, and those who are widows or widowers or uh, empty nesters, possibly grandparents, that in this season of life, as gospel coaches, they would minister to the younger families around them, both at church and in their broader family. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your gospel and your grace to us. We pray in Christ's name. Everyone said, amen. Amen, amen you guys. Thank you.